right, everyone. Welcome back to On Biblical Scholarship. My name is Eric Roseberry. I'm a pastor in Lafayette, Indiana, and a New Testament PhD student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Joining me today is Dr. Kevin Rowe. Dr. Rowe currently serves as the George Washington Ivy Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. He's also the author of Christianity's Surprise, A Sure and Certain Hope. Dr. Rowe, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Eric. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And I guess we'll just start at the beginning of your academic journey. What was it that initially got you interested in biblical scholarship in the first place? Well, um, I I didn't actually start off with a, an interest in uh, Christian theology of any sort um, in terms of the academic part of it, but um, I I met a woman actually who's now my wife uh, in college, and um, if I had, she basically said if you want to hang around me, you need to hang around church. So I started going to church a lot, and um, <clears throat> at the same time. Um, took a couple of courses, one in New Testament and then in philosophy, which is actually where I'd spent more time in undergraduate years, but, um, and was swept away really with, with uh, interest and enthusiasm. And so for me, there was a kind of uh, spiritual renewal at the same time or uh, growth, you might say, at the same time as a kind of intellectual awakening. Those coincided. And um, I spent a lot of my free time uh, reading theology, mm. and um, I had my philosophy professor, who was a man called Charles Lewis at Wake Forest. Uh, we were talking one day, and I said, you know, I'm not really sure what to do. I'm coming up on graduation. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you do in your free time? You know, And I said, well, I, I read theology. I was you know, and said, what kind? And I'd been reading Luther's On the Bondage of the Will at the beach, uh, of all things. And he said, well, maybe you ought to think about seminaries. So over a period of time, the last couple of years, I, I sort of discerned that seminary would be a good fit. Um, and I, I didn't actually have a sense even then that it would be an academic trajectory. I thought that I'd go into the pastorate. Um, but as seminary progressed, it made more sense, both uh, practically um, and in trajectory sense to go ahead and, and apply for a PhD right out of the of seminary rather than waiting. Um, and I didn't know what subject to enter, but I thought there were two things that led me to New Testament. First was I thought, you know, I don't actually know the Bible that well, mm. or really at all. I mean, I'd gone to some church growing up, but it, but it wasn't a, a sort of deep immersion in scripture kind of experience. And if I'm going to learn how to think like a Christian, I ought to be uh, in close proximity to the scriptural texts, um, which could lead either to Testament, of course. But then the second thing was that the man that I most admired, um, his character and his witness and his actual shape of his life, uh, was a, 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 toward the end of his career, a man named Ulrich Mauser, and he was a New Testament scholar. Um, and so it just seemed uh, natural to go into New Testament. A lot of my inclination was more toward abstract conceptual stuff like mm. philosophy and, and systematic theology, but I needed to be with the Bible. It's probably maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but no, that's, how that's I got great. There. Well, and so eventually you end up at Duke, and I'm curious what led you there for your doctoral studies, and then were you looking at anywhere else, and what ultimately placed you there for that period of your life? Sure, it's a fine question. Um, 
So there, there were two considerations I, I had. <clears throat> One was, um, where could I, I go and uh, be happy <laughs> with sort of the general shape of life uh, so that my, my family life would, would be flourishing? And um, the other, of course, was the, the academic one. Um, I should say it's it's just hard to leave uh, domestic difficulty or wreckage to go bless the world. So the, the shape of your life is really critical. And I had a my wife was extraordinarily supportive, so that was a, a, a luck factor in a sense, a character for her and others. But um, it, it came. We, we looked at a lot of places. We thought about Saint Princeton Seminary. They had a terrific program. Doctor Mauser was retiring, so it was of less interest at the moment. It was terrific. Um, it came down um, to Duke and Yale, and they were very different programs. Uh, Yale was uh, in a bit of transition <clears throat> and was also very much focused in um, the traditional uh, philology and uh, history and texts, not just in the sense that you should know that stuff, because any program is going to say you should know that stuff, but, but methodologically, um, there was a, a kind of historical focus that set theology to one side. Um, that, that wouldn't, that's a slightly caricature, uh, of course, but, but it's how I perceived it at the time. Uh, at Duke was uh, Richard Hayes and um, E.P. Sanders and Moody Smith, um, and then people in theology like Jeffrey Wainwright, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, American and David Steinmetz in church history, Grant Wacker. So they, they seem to be hitting on all cylinders. And um, Richard in particular, uh, we, we just got along right at the beginning and saw eye to eye and had sensed, it wasn't just that we saw eye to eye, we sensed that we saw eye to eye. I mean, I was learning from him, but there was a, a connection. So really it wasn't that hard a decision once it came down to which place are you going to uh, move and and so we moved down here. Our families are from North Carolina, which didn't hurt either, yeah, to say the least. But but it was really Duke's theological interest that, that drew me here. Yeah, and um, with your time that you spent at Duke, as you look back on those few years of your life, what are some of the lessons you took away? Either personal things you learned about yourself going through the PhD journey, or they can be more research oriented. Here's just some things I figured out yeah. about how to be a doctoral student while I was there. So I sure I, I'm the way I talk to doctoral students now, uh, and this again is is would vary from place to place and depending on the kind of life that you're trying to to live. But I do talk about a doctoral life and um, and tend to emphasize um, that at least if you want to to reach a certain kind of sophistication in your thought and research. Um, it, it is pretty close to all-consuming. Um, it's, it's not something that, that can be done sort of on the side uh, easily. It, it can be finished. It can be, you know, you can get over the hurdles, but it's more like you're climbing over them and falling down on the other side than it is that you're actually running over hurdles in the way they're meant to be left. Um, so I, I, I think there's a kind of, uh, extreme, almost asceticism, where if, if you've, you know, got 
you're trying to juggle different things, you're going to have to probably get rid of a lot of them mm-hmm. um, and, and really just pare down and, and, and do the thing that you need for your life, uh, whatever that is. It may be your family or if, if you're unmarried, something else or whatever. But, um, but then you need to be working very, very hard um, and, and reading and uh, learning how to grow intellectually. Um, it's not just the addition or accumulation of knowledge. Uh, that That's sort of one way it's typically, I think, misframed. You're sort of just getting more of the same. It's like an MDiv, but more. Um, it, it's not really that. It, it's a kind of um, intellectual transformation uh, where you, you go toward the ability to produce things that are worth taking the time to produce, like a dissertation. Um, so that's one angle. It, it's, it's a sort of doctoral life. It's not just more study. Habit-wise, I don't know, Eric. I, I was kind of a rabbit worker. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really have hobbies or anything like that. I mean, I, as I, was to, I mean, just my, my, uh, we, we had a very young son, and um, I, I did that and, and studied like mad. And I suppose the intellectual habits that I would, uh, I'll mention two because I could go on forever, as you can tell. Um, one is just read good books. They don't all have to be in your field. They don't, and they shouldn't all be in your field. Um, but don't spend time reading trash or online or whatever. Uh, when you're when you're in the the job of learning how to read well, which is doctoral studies uh, in, in the humanities and biblical studies, whatever, then the best thing you can do is read excellent material. Mm. Um, and it can give you life. So, I mean, uh, there are people that became really critical for me just to sustain my, my motion through journal articles and whatever. And, and there was Tolstoy or, you know, that, that kind of thing where you're, you're actually being elevated as you read. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there, there's also theology. You read, read theologians that bring you joy or insight or whatever. The other thing I'd say, and this is the second, is um, it's got two sides to it. If you've got a particular kind of, of faculty that you're studying with, um, take courses in things that you can't learn by yourself things for which you need a teacher. So I spent uh, a lot of time in rabbinics because Ed Sanders was here. Yeah. And, um, and I don't use rabbinics in my own scholarship, really. I, I learned enough about it to learn that you, you need to know a lot more than I do to, to actually work in a scholarly way with that material. But rabbinics really isn't something you can just pick up on your own. You can't just sort of start in with the Mishnah. Uh, and have a clue what it's about. You really do need a teacher. And there are other areas like that. So figure out which ones you need a teacher for and take teachers who can teach you that stuff. And the other stuff you can just read books on. Uh, the, the Roman army, you can learn a lot because the scholarship is just prodigious on, on that. And you don't have to, you can just go read about it. The, um, the, the flip side is, um, if you're on a, at a place where you have a very strong thinker or a couple of them, um, expose yourself to that person just to be around a powerful mind. Mm. 
will help you, whether you agree with that person or not. There are people that think Stanley Hauerwas is just straight on gospel, and there are people that think they just can't stand what he says. But nobody who's around him leaves the encounter without learning how to think about something better. I mean, it, it just so that being around a, a powerful thinker is really critical for your own development. That's really helpful. When you think about your own research life, are there just some practical decisions you've made to try and help you be as productive as you can, be able to prioritize writing and research? Just what does life look like to try and make sure that stays on the front burner? Um, well, there, I mentioned a couple of things. Yes, is the short answer. I, I don't think that, that researchers tend to produce decent research sort of by accident. I do think you have to plan it and not necessarily ahead, but you have to have a habit that allow for it to develop. So the, the first one I'll mention actually was more of a corollary of a, of a different decision. When we got married, we decided not to have a TV. Mm-hmm. We were pretty young, uh, just turned 21 and, and decided we better get to know each other before we sort of started vegging or, you know, and uh, blanking out. And then we just stuck with that. We, we, we never did get one. And um, it, it, the, the lack of wasted time has meant um, a remarkable sort of effect in productive time, mm. whether that's relational or uh, research-wise. I mean, if you, if you watch an hour of TV and then you realize, well, we, we haven't even had a conversation today. We need to have a conversation. Then you have a conversation. Then before you know it, you're exhausted and you want to fall asleep. Yeah. If you don't have that, time waste in there, then you can have a conversation and then get another hour of work done or whatever your yeah. schedule may be. But so that's one thing, just cutting out the, the, the trash and the waste was really helpful early on. Um, the other thing I'd say is I, it's hard to do um, because it, it varies from place to place where what your teaching assignments are. But the more you can get everything in your teaching, research, preaching, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, we did a lot of youth ministry early on, uh, which sounds odd about what I'm going to say, but it did sort of going in one direction, the, the better it feeds on itself. Um, so if, if you're teaching, um, you know, for me, I, I, I had the privilege of being able to teach kind of in my research lane or made my research lane what I was teaching. Some places you can't do that, but you can still kind of aim it that way. I mean, it, it's, it's still possible. You know, if you're teaching a lot of Bible, you don't necessarily then want to start in on trying to publish an article on Luther. You might, if your specialty is Luther, you might publish on Luther's reading of a passage in the Bible that you've been teaching on. So you try to get as much of it going in the same direction as possible. Um, again, it can be harder or easier depending on where you are, but Sure. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one question about uh, some of your research. I first encountered your work in the Oxford Handbook of the Trinity, and so your article, The mm-hmm. Trinity and the Letters of St. Paul in Hebrews, Chris Tellings noted that for many years the topic of Paul and the Trinity was either ignored or kind of pushed to the margins of New Testament scholarship. What do you think has led to the resurgence of uh, the willingness to interact with that question on Paul and the Trinity in New Testament scholarship recently? Uh, excellent question. Hmm. 
I don't know the answer. Okay. I was just, yeah, I was curious <laughs> I mean, if you had one. There, there's a kind of um, convergence um, of, of different folks who got interested in a similar set of questions. Um, the early Christology stuff that, that started coming out um, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. Um, and there were a whole range of studies. I mean, people know Hurtado's, of course, but um, there, there were a whole range of studies that looked at um, Christology in a, a, a Jewish light and in a um, sort of in light of some of the questions about development and uh, about uh, dating, you know, with the, is this Philippians hymn, the hymn in Philippians 2, if A, it's a hymn, and if B, uh, it's early, then it's significant, and they begin to latch on to some of those questions. And then um, some of the other side that sort of came into that had to do, and this was more where, where I came in with more of a philosophical or theological interest in how language works and imply judgments of certain kinds of grammars. Um, and um, if you're going to think, uh, well, if you're going to speak in a certain way, it's going to require certain things to be true. Right. And ferreting out what those true things are so that the grammar works the way it actually does uh, seemed really important uh, to me and, and to some others. And it just turned out also in a kind of, human relational way that several of us wound up knowing each other. <laughs> so then we would email back, you know, um, and, and so some of that got going that way. Um, yeah. Richard Balkum, uh, of course, did a, did a he does everything yeah. well, but, um, you know, John Barclay got interested in some of it and Francis was at Watson was interested in it. And, um, Tom Wright was interested in it from a different angle. And then Larry Hurtado, of course, and James Dunn. I mean, early on, uh, Jimmy Dunn's Christology in the making was really important. Um, I didn't think he had the conceptual frame, right. He was going at really significant questions from a, you know, massively learned standpoint. So sure. All of that kind of came together. I think. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that does give kind of a helpful framework for the, the conversation. Uh, turning w- just to a few questions uh, the last few minutes with advice for sure. prospective PhD students. I'm sure you get this all the time, an email or a student mm-hmm. comes up, I'm thinking about pursuing a PhD. I don't know if it's right for me. Are there a few pieces of standard advice you give that student? Great question. Um, I usually ask a couple of questions. <clears throat> One of them is what are grades? Um, I mean, just basic, they're basic hurdles, basic bars. You, you, you just have to cross them or it's not for you. And the reason that it's not for you is that you won't get in. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's not, it sounds crap because there are people who have immense talents and have discovered them later. Um, and, but that takes, that's a different kind of application. And if once, if you get to that point, then you can have that discussion. Right. But, but usually there, there needs to be some kind of initial fit between aspiration and record. Mm. And um, it, it, you know, if somebody wants to go to medical school and they have all C's and D's, they're just, it's just not going to happen. Right. 
And no amount of conviction about vocation <clears throat> is going to really overcome that, at least uh, in, in the initial uh, planning phase. Um, so I, I would ask about that. There, there's some resume questions. Um, and then once that's kind of out of the way, it, it's really a question about the, the, the passion for me. If, if you um, think that you can't live without it, then it's probably something to really think about. Mm. If you're just kind of interested in it, but interested in other things too, you, you often will not have what it takes existentially or whatever you want to say for that spiritually, personally, to get through the dissertation. Yeah. A lot of people can stumble through coursework. You kind of just, cause you kind of know how to do a course, even if it's a harder, longer course, bigger paper, whatever uh, you, you can kind of do, do it. You get to the exam phase and that's a different animal altogether. And, and it was really challenging. You get through that and then you're just at the foot of the mountain. And the dissertation is really the point of the PhD in a sense. Um, and that just takes a whole different set of existential dynamics to get through. So to me, the, the question is about passion. Um, you know, does the fire burn really hot? Um, or is it kind of, eh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting stuff and I've liked seminary or I like my master's program and I like Bible study. Uh, and I thought maybe I could, could keep going with that. Yeah. That that's a, probably more of a warning sign kind of answer. Um, So I I would also say sort of like these doctors that that go into certain specialties and they hear early on, well, don't go into this one or that one because it takes so long to train. Well, once you're in it, you're you're in it for so long. It doesn't really matter if you've taken one or two extra years or one or two extra years on the front end to figure out if you really want to do it. Right. Um, So if you finish your PhD when you're three versus 32, because you've taken the time to discern, I'm talking about somebody who's very young when they start, you've taken the time to discern whether you want to do it or it fits your life. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's more important to take the time to discern. And when they've made that decision and they're starting to think about who they might want to study with or what program they might be interested in, any advice for making that initial contact with an advisor they might be interested in working with for a couple of years? (laughs) I just send them an email or call them up or what um, <laughs> academics are kind of weird people, Eric. I mean, they're, they're, so <laughs> you know, there's, they're, 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 they're I mean, they, they go off in their offices and sit by themselves for hours at a time. And so, you know, personally, they can be kind of awkward, but I, I, I would just say email. If you don't get a response, don't overread it. Uh, I just email again. Yeah. Um, I, I, get a lot of email every day. Now, part of it is now I'm doing sort of vice dean of our faculty. So there's a lot more administration, but um, to do, but nonetheless, even before that, the, the numbers of emails that come in during the course of the semester and so on, um, it, it can easily mean you just see a name, you don't recognize the name and, and it gets buried under the mountain. Um, so I would say get in touch. Um, there's, there's no special way to do it and there's nothing wrong with emailing several times. We always like to end on this question. As you look at your own, uh, research interest or field over the next handful of years, what are a couple of the conversations you're most excited to be a part of? What a good question. 
Um, so I have a, an article that's coming out, I think, in the next issue of NTS of New Testament Studies, and it's on the question of uh, the truth claims of the New Testament and how we understand the assertions of truth that the New Testament makes on a page-by-page basis and then in a comprehensive sense. And so I'm, I'm most interested to uh, think through what kind of truth. I mean, I've been sort of doing this for, for the last several books, but this would be a more thematized way. Um, thinking through the question of truth in relation to the biblical text and in relation to what kind of pressure uh, these claims put on our thinking and how it is that scholarship can um, work as a reception of those questions or as a deflection of those questions. Mm. And the kind of um, concomitant existential posture that would go with each one of those maneuvers um, well, maneuver may not be quite right, but each one of those ways of being, ways of, of relating to the text. So I'm very interested in the text's encounter with us. Mm. And um, by us, I mean human beings, of course, but really specific, I, I mean scholars. Yeah. In what way does our scholarship serve to further encounter with the text? And in what way does it serve to deflect the text so that we become mired in secondary and tertiary and so on discussions and never return uh, actually to drink of the streams of the living water um, or to taste of them and spit them out? I mean, I don't yeah. mind a Nietzsche. He's honest. Yeah. And and I would rather engage with, with that sort of stuff than than with uh, the kind of drivel that, that uh, passes sometimes for, for academic learning. So I'd say around truth is what I'm most interested in. Well, I think I speak for everyone when we say we're looking forward to reading that and getting to interact with that. And Dr. Rowe, thank you so much for your time today. Anything you want to plug before we wrap up or let people know about? Eric, I... I I can't think of anything um, except just to say I, I uh, am thankful, so thankful for the, the work of pastors um, and for the life of the church. Uh, pray for our church. Pray for Duke Divinity School. Yep. Uh, if, you, um, if you think about it, um, we, we're trying to do something uh, that we think is important and holding together the, the life of the mind and the love for the church. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, I think that'd be it. I'm delighted to have talked with you and, and thank you for asking me. Yeah, well, thank you again for your time and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of On Biblical Scholarship. Again, you can listen on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, rate and review the show. And we'll be back next week with Dr. Brittany Kim.